Welcome to episode number 62 of the Jackson Hole Connection, brought to you by Giver, a garage-born outdoors and apparel company. Please visit the jacksonholeconnection.com slash giver to learn more. That's G-I-V-E-R. I'm Stephan Abrams, your host today. I believe if you desire a truly fulfilling life, both personally and professionally, then you must be willing to find a connection with people outside of your everyday circle of influence, which is why I created the Jackson Hole Connection podcast. If you met today's guest walking down the street, you would not have any clues about some of the killer jobs Jim has held. Jim Wood Mincy first landed in Jackson Hole in 1982 to work one season in the national park system. Well, 37 years later, Jim has been a member of the famous Jenny Lake Climbing Rangers, took a personal hobby as a career of weather forecasting, rose the ranks as a critical community member, husband, and father. Jim will share with us how he followed his dream. He started with his first computer in 1991 when the internet was still dial-up and built a name for himself. Fast forward to modern times and Jim is sought after to forecast weather for important climbing expeditions such as Everest. Jim has two little nuggets of life which he'll be sharing with us today, which has guided him to success. Jim, I'm excited that you've accepted my invitation to be a guest here on the Jackson Hole Connection today. Thanks oh, for coming. Excited to be here. This is going to be a lot of fun. I was reading your bio that you submitted to me, and it said that you came out here to work in 1982 for the National Park Service. That's correct. What inspired you to do that? Well, I um, was going to school at Montana State University up in Bozeman, Montana, and uh, I was graduating that spring with a BS in meteorology. And there's a joke in there if you think about it. Okay. Uh, <laughs> I like it. <laughs> and uh, I, I really didn't uh, have any aspirations uh, to go to work, uh, say, for the weather service, because um, I knew I'd have to go to a city that probably was not near the mountains. And um, the only other option at that time would be maybe go to a, a small market TV station. And I was told when I was going to school that I had a good face for radio. So I ended up uh, thinking about it for a while and applying for some summer jobs uh, in Glacier Park and Grand Teton National Park. Those were my two choices. And I got hired in Grand Teton National Park and thought, well, I'll just come down for the summer. And what were you doing in Grand Teton? Well, the first summer I worked at the entrance station. Uh huh. And then uh, spent the next uh, 14 summers working as a climber ranger. That okay. Was my main goal was to try to get in the backcountry, work rescue, work as a climbing ranger. When I was in college, I was working as a mountain guide in the summers and uh, climbing since I was probably 14, 15 years old. And uh, so I, I was really interested in, in working in a professional capacity, climbing, um, and that, that job's pretty unique that way. So. And tell me how the job of being a climbing ranger is so unique, and it's very special as well. Yeah, it's, it's really specialized. It's very, at that time in the, in the early 80s, it was um, very rare that there'd be any job openings. Uh, on that crew of, of 14 or 15 climbing rangers at the time. And uh, I just happened to luck out. And I think, you know, getting my foot in the door that first summer and getting to know people and getting out climbing and, and uh, climbing with some of the climbing rangers and, and uh, having a beer uh, occasionally. Mm -hmm. with them. Uh, <laughs> it, 
and I got to know them, they got to know me, and so it was, it was an easier transition uh, that next summer to, to uh, take that job. And I don't know that I would have stuck around if I didn't mm-hmm. get, that, uh, get that job as a climbing ranger. It sounds like a pretty coveted job to be a climbing ranger. Yeah, I, I, I think so. I mean, I, I look back on it and, and uh, you know, the things that, uh, that you did and that those guys are, are still doing today are um, pretty underappreciated. You know, going into the mountains in the dark, uh, in snowstorms, uh, in bad lightning storms, whatever the case may be, and having to put yourself out there uh, with that kind of exposure to save somebody else, uh, there's not a lot of people that can do that mm-hmm. year after year after year. And that, that crew is pretty special that way. Um, some people you know, last a year or two and they're out of there. And, uh, but you know, most of them have been there, had been there a long time when I started. And uh, some of them are still there today. Do you recall a sticky or hairy rescue that you were a part of? during all those years that you were climbing ranger? Uh, it, in that case, I'd probably have to say too numerous to mention. Really? <laughs> uh, there's, there's a number. I mean, I, you know, I could probably come up with four or five right off the top of my head. Give us, give us one. <laughs> give us one. Uh, well, uh, one was a, a rescue in the month of September, mid-September, big uh, snowstorm up high on the mountain, uh, five climbers, uh, three of them ended up dying of hypothermia. Uh, one actually went over a cliff. Uh, and, and going up, uh, just me and one other ranger to uh, to rescue them on the Grand, uh, because you couldn't fly. It was full-on winter conditions um, and 80-plus uh, mile-an-hour winds at the lower saddle. Oh my gosh. Up, couldn't hardly see. Um, and uh, we ended up uh, just by chance um, seeing uh, one of the survivors was blinking his headlamp uh-huh. and there was just enough of a break in the, in the clouds uh, that night. We had already tried to go up once and uh, turned around and then once we saw that light it was like well game on we're, we're going. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that, that was uh, um, you know um, I guess you could say pretty hairy just because the mountain was all iced up and, and uh, two other rangers joined us and so there was actually four of us that went up, spent the rest of the night with the two survivors and got them out the next day. But uh, yeah, I mean, it, it, it just it, it's, it's one of those things where you are so focused on what you're doing and you, you know, you convince yourself that you have control over the situation and everybody trains so much together that you really um, develop this bond as a team and uh, and everybody's looking out for everybody else's back and I think, you know, some of the close calls I've had um, maybe wouldn't have been uh, close calls if, if it wasn't that everybody was so focused and, and on the same page on, on that rescue team. Well, Thank you for what you have done and to what everybody does to this day. Uh, and it's the Jenny Lake Climbing Rangers. Yes. Isn't it? And there's been some movies or some videos. Yeah, there's been a, there's documentaries. Been a few over the years. For, uh, going back, there was one that was made um, about the um, North Face Rescue back in the 60s, which at the time was, you know, the North Face of the Grand Teton is sort of like, you know, the North Face of the Eiger in Switzerland. It was a 
big, ominous, dangerous place to be, and to actually pull off a rescue on, on that face with you know all the objective hazards of rockfall and, and whatnot um, is, is pretty incredible. And there's been some since, um, and then there's uh, a, um, a film that Greg Winston um, did years ago um, that uh, is, I think, available on DVD that kind of highlighted what the, what the Jenny Lake Rangers uh, work was. It's kind of a unique film. Nothing that ever made the big screen, mm-hmm. but... That's all right. But it probably shows the fortitude that the group of rangers, climbing rangers, has. Yeah, I think so. And, uh, you know, like I said, I think that the job they do is kind of underappreciated. You know, there's Mm -hmm. the day-to-day things that they're doing, patrolling the backcountry and and, uh, getting updating route conditions and things like that. But uh, something goes down and there's a a rescue, and, and especially when somebody's life is on the line. Um, it's uh, it's pretty incredible what what goes on up there as far as the coordination. What goes on in your mind when you're up there? Those the conditions that are just winter blizzardy. You can barely stand up. How do you stay? You have to stay mentally strong. Yeah. How yeah, do you I mean, do that? Yeah, I, I think when you're um, you know if if someone was to say, oh, I want you to just go hike up. Uh, to the lower saddle today you'd go oh my god the weather's so bad i don't you know this is grim i don't want to do it and you sort of psych yourself out think of any excuse not to go somebody says there's somebody dying up on the grand right now um it's a different mindset Mm -hmm. and you know the difference between the person who's stuck up there who got caught in bad weather let's say and you you leaving the valley to go up into that is that you have the time to both physically and mentally prepare for it you know you're putting on your putting your winter mountaineering boots in, you're putting an extra puffy coat in, you know, they may not have any of that. Mm-hmm. And um, so you can kind of take care of yourself and make sure that you're going to um, have the equipment and the gear that you need to survive up there in those conditions. And then, of course, carrying whatever you might need to go get that person and make them comfortable too. So um, a little bit different uh, when somebody else is in, in peril. I think you just react to it. Sort of like, it, it, not quite like a fireman running into the burning building. Mm-hmm. But when a fireman runs into a burning building, if he's got all his uh, gear on to keep him as safe as possible from smoke inhalation and stuff like that, we're doing the same thing up there when you go on this. You're not just going out in shorts and flip-flops and running up the trail. So what transitioned you to go from being a climbing ranger into being broadcasting weather. I mean, you went to school for it. Yeah. I mean, you have your BS in it, yeah, which. I had my degree. <laughs> uh, um, and yeah, I, I was working that job in the in the summer months, and uh, I I think it was uh, winter of eighty five, eighty six. Uh, a guy that I had gone to school with was working at the Avalanche Forecast Center up in Alaska. And, they had a job opening up there for a meteorologist for that, uh, the Avalanche Forecast Center. So I actually got the experience of going, working in the Weather Service, National Weather Service office in Anchorage, and I was the meteorologist assigned to the Avalanche Forecast Center in Alaska. And that job lost its funding after that winter I was up there. And so I came back to Jackson and uh, 
uh, I needed a winter job because um, I had a summer job. And another guy I was going to, had gone to school with in Bozeman um, was working as the operations manager for High Mountain Heli Skiing in Jackson. So I started guiding for them, and uh, they knew that I was a, um, had a degree in meteorology, so they asked me, well, why don't you figure out the weather for us? <laughs> <laughs> Helicopter skiing is a very weather-dependent business, and if you can't see, you can't fly, and that means you can't work. So I'm um, trying to, you know, work the windows of weather on any given day uh, was always a challenge. And I actually started out forecasting for them by getting up a little bit earlier and watching the weather channel. No kidding. It was quite annoying because uh-huh. I'm waiting for the satellite loop to come on, you know, so I can see the clouds on the, on the satellite. And inevitably the weather channel meteorologist would put his head right over Wyoming and be pointing to the east coast. <laughs> so I had to wait another 15, 20 minutes for that to come up. And, you know, to be honest, uh, you know, a simple forecast of uh, partly cloudy with a chance of snow showers from the weather service wasn't cutting it for figuring out where the weather windows were going to be. So in 1991, I bought my own, my first computer and started downloading data um, that you could you know, basically it was weather service data, you know, all the same tools you can get. Well, not all the same tools you can get today, but similar tools. Uh, it was a little more archaic back then. And remember, 1991, that's before the internet. Mm-hmm. So you were downloading stuff via modem over your phone line. Yeah, that's... computer. So you'd build a menu of, of weather products you wanted to look at every day, and it would take about 40 minutes to download that. Oh my gosh! Look at it. So, uh, that's how I got started there, and and um, I think it was uh, winter of '93, um, '93 '94, I think, um, is when I first started broadcasting on the local radio station. Um, I I was sending a fax out with my forecast that I was making in the winter months for the heli ski business, mm-hmm. and that sort of expanded out to other ski shops and and uh, stores in town, businesses in town. And um, it was actually a group of those businesses that I had a connection with through both heli skiing and um, sending the, the uh, weather facts out that um, they took me to the radio station and said, well, we'll sponsor this guy to do the weather on the radio. And, um, the rest is history. Just grew from there, and uh, um, you know the internet came around, and I built a website in 1997. And, um, I got so busy with the weather stuff that I had to quit my summer job hiking and climbing in the Tetons, and I eked it out for another 10 years heli uh, skiing because I could do the forecast, go skiing, come back, do it all over again. Uh, the problem with the, the climbing ranger job was I ran the risk in the summer of having to go out on a rescue overnight uh-huh. and missing uh, a, the next day's forecast. So I was getting up at 4 o'clock in the morning, doing the forecast, driving up to the park, going hiking, climbing, whatever. Uh, I would do my uh, overnight patrols on weekends because I was forecasting Monday to Friday publicly. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and then in the winter, it was pretty much seven days a week forecasting and uh, for the helicopter ski operation. And, and 
It's an, an exhausting schedule. It sounds exhausting. I was young, so it was easy. <laughs> he probably had a kid yeah, at home. Two little kids in the house, and so it was easy. <laughs> of course, it's easy. Yeah, you know. <laughs> of course. Yeah, we got two little kids right now. It's you just do it. Yeah, yeah, and uh, yeah, now I'm kind of in that phase of life where I'd like to just slow it down a little more and do a little more for me and. Uh, little less for everybody else it's all right selfish no not at all so in 97 you started the website and has it always been called mountain weather yeah, mountainweather.com uh-huh yep. and how many when you first started it could you even tell how many visitors you were getting to the website well, i don't even know that i i had that capability back then mm-hmm yeah, I have no idea. I, I, I basically I built the website for my own personal use so that I could put all the weather links um, that I was using every day in one spot so I didn't have to keep going back to bookmarks. And um, so again, uh, some of the people that had sponsored me on the radio different businesses in town um, bought an ad on the website. And it sort of was a natural fit there too. And, and uh, you know, I've had a lot of great support and businesses like um, the liquor store, for instance, um, that have uh, been with me for a long time. And, and uh, that's kind of what keeps it going. And I think a lot of a lot of those businesses see it as a service to the, to the community, I guess, in a way, to have that kind of local weather information accessible uh, without having to go to Weather Channel or AccuWeather or whatever. Well, I'm sure that the weather you're the weather you're providing is more specific to what's going on here and in the mountains in certain areas of yeah. here versus the Weather Channel. Like it says, cloudy chance of snow. It's like, well, that's not going to help anybody because yeah. you don't want to be stuck in the mountains. <laughs> yeah, and, and uh, I mean, any forecast can be wrong. Um, I always kind of prided myself on on making a forecast um, for the person that might be going into the mountains that day and I wouldn't want to mislead them into thinking uh, it was going to be a perfectly sunny day when there was any kind of chance of showers or lightning in the summer, snow in the winter. Um, of course, in the wintertime, it's sort of a different mindset. People want the weather to be bad. They want it to snow. Mm-hmm. In the summer, they just want it to be nice. Mm-hmm. And uh, So I, I always try to put myself in the user's shoes. And you know, What are people doing today? Are they floating the river? Are they hiking in the mountains, are they trying to take a bike ride uh, to Jenny Lake and, and, uh, you know, when's it going to get bad and how bad's it going to be, you know, sort of paint a picture of that. And just having a lot of local links to weather instruments and things like that. I mean, you can, from the website, you can get information for basically anywhere on the globe, but um, there's a lot of Jackson Hole specific pages on that website that uh, are important to, to me. The local people. And how many visitors do you get to your website now? I still don't even know. No, I don't. I don't. I, every once in a while, somebody, you know, a uh, an advertiser will ask me, you know, well, how many impressions is my ads getting, and and how many people are visiting the site. I mean, it's it's literally millions a year mm-hmm. uh, now, um, and uh, that visit the site from all over. Uh, the globe. I mean, you know, some of it you have to weed out. You, you know, it's like uh, somebody from um, Kyrgyzstan looked at it. Well, it's possible that it, they did because mm-hmm. uh, there's a lot of climbing in Kyrgyzstan, uh, and people go there, 
and there's also climbers in Kyrgyzstan, so they may be looking for some specific weather information, uh, you know, computer models that cover that part of the globe or something like that. So, um, and I do some forecasting throughout the year for climbing expeditions, so that, that's sort of one of those things that I have tried to keep under the radar just because it's, it's a, it can become kind of overwhelming. Um, Why is it important to that those climbing expeditions get the the weather forecast from you? Well, uh, what they're looking for when they're over there is specific um, information to decide whether they should go high on the mountain or not. Mm-hmm. You know, whether it's uh, a climb of uh, Denali in Alaska or uh, something over in the Himalaya or Karakoram. Uh, and some of the, the climbers that I've had as, as customers over the years, I guess you could say, um, have come back on all their expeditions and ask for forecasts so that they don't go up high on the mountain and get caught in a storm that could potentially kill them. And um, uh, this summer uh, I did uh, two or three different ones in the Karakoram area, uh, one down in the Andes in in, uh, um, Chile uh, for a ski mountaineering trip. Uh, and And some of them are pretty serious climbs. It's not like, oh, we can turn around at any point. Uh, they get to a point of no return where if, if the weather's not good, they're not going to be able to retreat. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's it's sort of high-stress forecasting when we're doing that. But um, like I said, I, I, don't, I don't advertise that. <laughs> so... Uh, so don't ask. Uh. <laughs> um, <laughs> but yeah, if, if it's, you know, like I'll, I'll have a couple coming up here uh, in the Himalaya mm-hmm. for the fall climbing season. And it's people that I've had use my forecast before. You certainly have built a niche. I guess so. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it's interesting to see how you use the weather and these climbers and mountaineers are using the weather versus... The majority of the population uses it. Do we take the kids to the park today? Am I going to go on a bike ride? Yeah. Or do I need to evacuate for a hurricane? Yeah. Which is life and death. Sure. Any of those. Any of those could be. Uh, if you go picnic in the park and there's a thunderstorm that's spitting out a lot of lightning, you're just as exposed. True. True. But these people are choosing to go on these expeditions, but they see the tool that you have. So what did people do before the technology of weather forecasting? I I actually did um, an Everest forecast way back in, I think, 2000. And um, those uh, was either satellite phone where you would directly talk to them, or they would actually have a link up where you could email them a forecast. Huh. Some of these other places, these um, groups are going are so remote that um, all they have is this little in-reach device. I don't know if you're familiar with that or not, but it's sort of an emergency texting device, and you can also push a button and alert that you know you're in trouble, you need a rescue. But they can basically use it almost like a cell phone, uh, but it's you know linked to a satellite where they can uh, send text messages. And so that's that's the primary means of communication, which is very tedious. Um, but a lot of times, uh, the climbers will have a sat phone, and then we'll set up a time to talk, and, and uh, I'll have a forecast prepared for them. That way, they can hear the inflection in my voice, 
as whether I'm really worried about it or mm-hmm. or how serious the weather might be. Um, and uh, I think that's most effective for those guys. And it probably means a lot to these climbers with you being a climber yourself and forecasting. Yeah, and I, I think my experience uh, in the mountains helps uh, uh, being a climber, like you said, um, at least used to be mm-hmm. a climber, because I, I can put myself in their boots. I, I know what it would be like if I was stuck up there. And, uh, I, you know, would I want to be up where they are at 20, 25,000 feet in the weather that I'm looking at on the computer? And if the answer to that is no, then I'll tell them, you know, maybe you should wait, give it another couple of days, let this pass. Fascinating. Fascinating. Jim, we're going to take a quick break from and get a word from one of our sponsors and we'll be right back. All right. What is your passion? Do you know what it really means to give it your all? Well, the folks at Giver, this is their passion. It is what gets them out of bed every morning to chug a half gallon of coffee and eat a one pound burrito and give the rest of the day everything they just ate and more. Giver, to give it your all. Check out their selection of personalized, branded, kick-ass gloves and more at the jacksonholeconnection.com slash giver, G-I-V-E-R. My pick last year was the Old Faithful Top. You have not experienced comfort until you pulled one of these bad boys on. You just gotta trust me. Now, giver. So we were talking about some of the roles that you play out there. You have a website, mountainweather.com. And uh, for a few people, you create forecasts for their climbing expeditions. What are some of the other things that you find to get yourself into? Because <laughs> you don't seem like an idle person. Um, no, I, uh, work-wise, uh, I've the last 10, 12 years, actually it's been longer now, it's probably 15 plus years I've been teaching weather classes. I started out teaching weather classes to the general public. Um, I'll do a number of talks over the the course of the year. I go to, you know, uh, classrooms in the elementary schools and and give them a basic little weather uh, talk. And, um, but, you know, for adults, uh, I've put together a uh, a number of different courses that I teach um, different times of the year and then I've also developed a couple of uh, courses for uh, the United States military for both the, their weather forecasters or their meteorologists as well as uh, uh, troops on the ground um, and pilots uh, pararescue jumpers people like that um, so I've, I've been working with all branches of the military, um, except the Army. So Navy, Marines, Air Force, doing uh, other courses. You seem like you just fly under the radar here. That uh, Here's Jim Woodmincy, who has mountainweather.com, but there's all this other stuff that's going on in the background. It's it's awesome. Yeah. What's your your drive to do all this? I, I, I think I've just always had um, a keen interest in the weather, mm-hmm. probably dating back to when I was in the Boy Scouts and my dad taking me backpacking and, and starting to climb in the mountains. And it seemed like every step of the way, you just kept, I just kept getting closer and closer 
to the mountains, you know, when you're backpacking, you're on a trail and you're admiring things from the distance. When you're climbing, you're right up, it's right up in your face. And then that, the weather becomes more and more critical uh, with every step, with every bigger peak you do, um, you know, climbing in the winter, climbing uh, in the summer and, and trying to avoid thunderstorms. Uh, and the weather's always such a big part of that. And then you get into skiing and it's like, you want to know when it's going to snow. So there's all these elements, weather elements that I want to know about. I want to know more about And I don't, I've never been satisfied with just looking at a forecast. I want to know why there's a 50% chance of showers. I want to know which direction the weather's coming from. Is it coming from the southwest, the northwest? Is it going to be, you know, cold air uh, from the north and, and go to below zero at all elevations? Or uh, why is the weather doing what it's doing? So I've always been fascinated with that, uh, no matter where I've been. And, uh, and now I feel, you know, I, I guess, the, you know, paraphrase, naked and afraid if I don't have access to some <laughs> uh, weather information to be able to at least see for myself um, what the weather pattern is and, and where weather's going to be coming from before I go out into the wilderness or, or even just, you know, taking a bike ride up to the parking back. How windy is it going to be? How, how much of a headwind am I going to have coming back? You know, and I can mentally, mentally prepare a little bit better, I guess, for even things like that. So with all of your successes that you've had in life, which I see your facial expressions, but it, you have had some great successes. You've been a wonderful climbing ranger. You were a heli ski guide. Um, you started a business organically. It probably just happened through happenstance. Like you said, you needed, instead of having all the bookmarks, you created a website. Yeah. So it just happened. Um, you you said in the in the pre-show that your success comes from determination and passion. Where did you learn that from? Uh, I think I probably got that mainly from my dad. And uh, one of the things I learned from him uh, as I was going through high school and into college, he he was he was in the Air Force. He got a degree, went in the Air Force, and then uh, as soon as he got out of the Air Force, he went to work as a chemical engineer and worked, you know, almost 30 years. And I remember him saying those last 10 years or so that he was working, he says, I can't wait until I retire so I can do all the things I want to do. And I thought to myself, well, that's great, but, you know, at 60 years old, how much can I be doing that I really want to do when I'm 30? And... Um, you know, he, he was always one of these people that, you know, you work hard and you make a good living and and uh, and you can afford to do the things you want to do. But his problem was he didn't have any time mm. to do it. And he was waiting to retire, basically, so he'd have the money to do what he wanted to do. And I was like, I think I'm going to try to do as much as I can early and then I'll work on figuring out how I'm going to support myself with a real job when I get older. And that's kind of the way my life went. But he was, you know, it, he had a lot of passion for the things he did and, and uh, uh, I, I just, somewhere along the line, it got into my head that as long as you're um, doing something you love to do or you're passionate about for work, 
Um, that's the most important thing. And, uh, and to me, it was, um, you know, uh, priority one was you got to like where you live. Priority two is you got to like what you're doing for work where you're living. And priority three, and not necessarily in this order because my wife might get mad. You got <laughs> to like being who you're with. Mm-hmm. And and the three of those things together kind of make life great. So I'm in Jackson. I've done things I love to do. And I've been with somebody that I love being with and raised two great kids here. And I, got, I, I can't think of any regrets. And I think a lot of it was I was determined to follow that path. I was determined to live somewhere I, I wanted to be and stayed here. And um, and kept doing jobs that I love to do. Kudos to you. Passion part, I guess. I I love it, and I'm so happy that you were able to define what you needed in life to to be happy. And I've heard from I think Napoleon Hill originally said it, or at least that's where I originally heard it. That if you are not really enjoying or behind or really emotionally into what you do for work, then it's always going to feel a burden. But when you, when it doesn't feel like work, it's easy. Yeah. Yeah. It's always, I guess it's, it's been that way. Mm -hmm. I I can't say that uh, forecasting the weather didn't become a grind. Um, And, you know, it's uh, changing the way I do things now uh, a little bit. But, um, you know, I still enjoy forecasting. I still enjoy that challenge. Uh, the thing about the weather is every day you get up, your job is different. If the weather has changed some, somehow, some way. I mean, if I was forecasting for somewhere in Southern California all the time or Hawaii, I'd probably get really bored with it. Uh-huh. <laughs> but, uh, you know, here, it's, I mean, this place, is, there's always something changing <laughs> It's different weather patterns from the morning to the afternoon to the evening. Yeah, and and just, you know, uh, even thinking about uh, a few nights ago, um, it was clearing in town, and we were like, oh, let's go up to the park and listen to the elk bugle. And by the time I got to the airport, it was snowing. And then it snowed on and off up, uh, you know, in in the park up towards Denny Lake. And I'm like, well, okay, yeah. and that's what makes forecasting here so difficult. You, you, if you say snow showers and you're in town and you don't get a single flake all day, you go, oh, the guy was wrong. But if you were up at Jenny Lake all day, for instance, right up against the base of the mountains and it was snowing on and off all day, you go, I think he was a little weak on that. This is, you know, it's been snowing most of the day up here. You know? So it can never be right. And it's a totally thankless job. It's amazing that anybody does that job. <laughs> Well, I'm glad that you do it. Well, I, I, I can take the abuse. You're very... You're, I'm determined. <laughs> We're a very humbled and kind person. And I'm sure that that feeds into why you go and talk to the kids and why yeah. you want to help well, other people. I, yeah, I love, I love that. Um, I love doing that. I just did it uh, this past week. And, you know, second and third graders, and, and they're, they're so sharp in this town. I mean, they're just... It's, it seems to me they're, they're, they're just so in tune to it. And, and they all, 
you know, Jackson kids get outside. They're they're observing things. They're looking at the weather. And they don't know everything in their mm-hmm. age, but um, I, I just hope that they continue to um, pay attention to the weather. And, and, uh, I have a six-year-old, and he has a book that talks about the different types of clouds and we've looked oh look it's gonna rain he's like yeah those are so-and-so clouds yeah. i'm like huh yeah no they, these kids know what a cumulus cloud is they, <laughs> they, they get it um, they, they understand you know why the sun rises and sets yeah and uh, uh some are a little confused about that part but um in, in general they get it yeah you know the earth is round and you know it's spins on its axis just feed them information yeah feed them yeah, information yeah no, it, 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 it's amazing because they're starting with a, basically a, an empty hard drive mm-hmm. and, um, they're filling it up I, you know I, i'm older and uh, back in our day uh, our hard drives probably weren't as big but uh <laughs> there's only so much information you can keep storing in your head but these guys are fresh you know it's it's, it's neat to to talk to them and converse with them about the weather. It is. And during your your life, your life cycle here, are there things that you've done to always stay fresh and on top of uh, the current trends for, for your industry, but also when you're a climbing ranger as well? Yeah, I think it's, it's always evolving. Um, when I was uh, just going back to the climbing ranger uh, era of my life, um, you know, the first couple of years there, all we used helicopters for was to get to point A and B, and we did some pretty hairy landings to get to people and, and try to get them in a helicopter and get them out of there. And then uh, we got a new boss, and he brought in the heli-repel and short-haul program, and and then that evolved into just um, insertion and short-haul, where you're basically dangling under a helicopter, 150, 200-foot rope underneath, and getting... Uh, put down on a, a ledge the size of this desk uh, <laughs> and then get you know uh, all the gear flown into you under the helicopter letting the patient in clipping them in and flying them away and it, it uh, you know um, that whole evolution made the job quicker easier um, probably save more people um, and uh, and with the weather I just I'm constantly looking for what's the new, latest, greatest thing. I um, uh, converse with Chris Jones over at the Weather Service office in in Riverton um, several times a year, and we he'll come over for lunch and we'll trade baseball cards, uh, and um, he'll keep me up on the latest things that Weather Service is doing. I mean, there's been a lot of things that have evolved since I bought my computer in 1991 or from when I went to college. Are you still using the same computer? Oh, no. <laughs> no I, I think my, well, I know my, my iPhone has uh, more storage yeah. capability than that computer had. Yeah. Um, I think, you know, it had a 64 megabyte hard drive. I mean, that's, you know, a couple of good quality photos these mm-hmm. would fill that up. Um, but when I, when I started in college in the late 70s, um, your weather maps came off of a, a facsimile machine, huh. big, wide thermal paper facsimile machine, and you would download all those products and look at them on a paper map. There was no computer, and then computers came around, and, and you started getting those same products, but you could look at them on your computer and save them and do whatever you wanted, 
print out this, don't print out that. Uh, but now, uh, since the internet and all these different uh, weather sources now are just, you know, basically everything that the Weather Service has at their fingertips, you can get for free um, on your home computer, on your phone. And that's, the game has changed um, because everybody can look at it. So do people still go to school to be a meteorologist? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. okay. Because yeah. somebody's got to produce the information. Yeah. yeah, somebody, I mean, there's a couple different routes you can take when you go to school. My route was I wanted to be an operational forecaster. So, um, you know, for that, the BS is all that's required. If you want to get into computer modeling or, or research, then, you know, you would be a master's or PhD, but you end up not actually forecasting weather you're just working on things that make uh, computer models better um, and faster or um, more user-friendly so I've just always been into the nuts and bolts forecasting I like being a, a equivalent of a carpenter um, instead of an architect mm-hmm so the people who you see on the TV stations or if you hear somebody broadcasting such as yourself, that's typically what they are. It's called an operational forecaster. Yeah, operational forecaster. Okay. And, you know, if you have a, a you know, four-year degree in meteorology or the atmospheric, sci- atmospheric science, um, you can call yourself a meteorologist. There's mm-hmm. um, some programs that are just a two-year you're sort of a weather associate. Um, you can't call yourself an associate meteorologist, but you can call yourself a weather forecaster. Hmm. And um, that's, you know, as far as being able to get a job on like TV station, you almost have to have a degree in meteorology now because every other station has a meteorologist, mm-hmm. quote unquote. Um, so they're, they're all trained, you know, basically with the same background I had four years took me five but you know four years of college um and uh you have all the all the uh, right uh, credentials to be able to forecast but you really don't learn how to forecast till you get out of college and you start doing it i think that's with a lot of degrees you don't really learn how to put your degree or your training into place until you actually get in the world yeah. and you have a job then they're like okay you learned the basis but now we're going to teach you how it actually works. Yes, yeah, the real world. Yes, that's right. Yeah. yeah. Jim, this has been spectacular. I have learned so much about what's been going on around here in, in the time that you first started. So when you first came here to Jackson, it's a little bit different nowadays. It's a little bit different. Yeah. What do you think about that? It, it, I still love it here. And I still, you know, I think it's it's the people, it's the community that will probably keep me here. Um, it gets a little frustrating that there's more and more and more and more people. Um, and uh, you, you can't blame them, but I, I think we probably could have stopped advertising this place about 10 years ago. <laughs> it would have been would have been just as busy <laughs> we would have been fine uh, the one the biggest thing i've noticed is there there's really no off season anymore that's that's probably you know it used to be oh i don't know from mid-april to at least mid-may um town was pretty dead 
uh, from mid-October to mid-November. You know, you could basically have a cup of coffee and be reading the uh, Jackson Old Daily while you crossed Broadway mm-hmm. uh, without getting hit by a car. <laughs> um, you can't do that anymore. No. Uh, and it, it's, I, I don't know what the answer is, but, um, and I, I know it's it's good for business, but what, what can we really sustain? I don't know. Uh, it's still a great town, and when you do boil it down and, and uh, remove all the, the visitors, mm-hmm. it's a great community. It's a great town. I just have to be able to see it through the crowd. That's right. I think a lot of places are great towns. You just got to be able to see it through the crowd. Yeah. I mean, yeah. the same thing happened in Moab. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, it's out of control as far as uh, being able to go there, especially in the spring and fall, which is sort of their nicest time of year. It's just too busy. I've yet to go. Yeah. I, it's on the list. Okay. Well, don't go this time of year. No, I won't. I'll wait until my kid's a little bit older so we can be on the bikes. Yeah. 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 I love it. Yeah. So if people want to reach out to you and connect with you, what is the best way to do that? Uh, right through the website. Okay. Com. There's links on there that you can send me an email. I might awesome. say mail at mountainweather.com, but I'll answer to pretty much anything at mountainweather.com. Cool. Um, and, uh, yeah, I'd say email uh, is the best way. Awesome. It may take me a while to get to you because I might be doing something else, but, yeah. I'll, I'll get back. I love answering people's weather questions. I get a lot of them. Do you? Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. We'll send your weather questions to Jim. <laughs> he wants them. This has been spectacular. Thank you, Jim. I appreciate you taking the time out of your, your busy schedule. And I know you're transitioning into doing more play and excitement, but I'm glad that you do get out there and enjoy the world. All right. Well, thank you, sir. All right. Take care. To learn more about Jim, and his phenomenal mountain weather forecasting skills, please visit the jacksonholeconnection.com episode number 62. I love hearing from my listeners and subscribers, so if you have feedback or suggestions, send me an email to connect at jacksonholeconnection.com. Please remember to visit giver.com, G-I-V-E-R.com, to see what is happening in their world. I could not create this podcast without the support of my wife, Laura, my editor, Michael Morty, my musical director, Luke Taylor, and my marketing guru, Tana Hoffman. I sure hope you have enjoyed this episode, and I really look forward to seeing you back for the next episode of the Jackson Hole Connection.